You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, let's get right to it today. We need to talk about George Floyd. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's This is the dominating story. It should be the dominating story as much as we don't want it to be the dominating story. Um, you know, it's uh, just, just very briefly going over what happened. Uh, I, I'm just going to read... I'm going to do what I did with Ahmed Arbery uh, two or three weeks ago and just read the first little bit of the Wikipedia paragraph. I'll let you fill in the gaps and then we'll sort of uh, talk about it straight away. Uh, George, Sure thing. George Floyd was an unarmed African-American man who died on May 25th, 2020. That was two days ago at time of recording after white Minneapolis police officer Derek, I think it's Chauvin, knelt on Floyd's neck for over seven minutes while other officers helped restrain Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The incident was recorded on cell phone by several several bystanders, and the video recordings were widely circulated on social media platforms. Four officers involved were fired the next day. The, the FBI is conducting a federal civil rights investigation into the incident at the request of the Minneapolis Police Department, while the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension... Um, is investigating whether there were possible violations of of Minnesota statutes. So there's there's a few things that stick out to me, and I'll, I'll let you fill in the gaps here. Um, this happened two days ago. There were four officers uh, involved, including Derek Chauvin, who was the individual uh, who had his knee on on uh, on George Floyd's neck. Um, those those officers were all fired, and they all that that should be the least of their worries. Um, that if Correct. that, if that's the most that happens to any of those four, we're going to have some problems. Um, now, as far as an investigation is concerned, uh, I, I can appreciate the FBI jumping right in. I can appreciate the fact that the Minnesota police department stepped in and did, uh, stepped in and went ahead and terminated them very quickly. They were put on a administrative leave immediately after the incident and they were fired the next day is my understanding of what happened. That's pretty quick turn. Right. And right. And again, very sorry to almost cut you off there. You're fine. Quick turnaround and immediately, at least as immediately as bureaucracies can, uh, turning over the investigation and saying, no, this, this is not, this is no longer an internal affairs matter. We're handing this off to other people. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, some people will ask, well, why were the police involved? As I've been able to gather, uh, sources uh, have been kind of different. But as I referenced in the essay I published earlier, uh, uh, Floyd uh, uh, was apparently trying to use a counterfeit bill to pay for food. And the police were called because, uh, you know, counterfeit money, that's a problem. I don't know why, but that's a different that's a different discussion that I'm not going to even attempt to entertain today. Um, but um, and apparently Floyd was drunk, allegedly, and uh, resisted arrest. What exactly that looks like? Uh, I don't know, because I wasn't there. Uh, I don't know if there is footage of him resisting. I've only seen footage of him being restrained by three officers while one just kind of stood there. And uh, it's interesting when you when you see the footage, there's actually there's two different angles. There's the angle of one onlooker that is filming and saying, you know, hey, look, like 
he's i don't think he's breathing like you're killing him please like get off of him he's on the ground um and a photo was taken from the opposite side of the street that showed that there was the officer standing basically off to the side at a parade rest position basically uh officer in question with his knee on his neck kind of rocking back and forth on him and i guess because he got uncomfortable while he was uh you know crushing someone under his metaphorical heel and then there are two officers that are also uh not actively restraining him but are next to the officer with his knee on floyd's neck and so the kind of the question that everyone is immediately asking is why did that much force need quote unquote to be exerted you had him on the ground he's presumably handcuffed if you're worried he's going to get up you can like i can understand holding a belligerent drunk down like i can i can gift that that can go real dangerous real quick so i can understand holding a knee on the back or something like that to keep them on the ground. But you have at best excessive force. And I've, most people can probably figure out what I think should be done about it. So I'll just leave that to people to kind of tease out. But that's going to be the major question. And that's the major question anytime this comes up is, why did you have to proceed that way? Well, with with that excessive force, um, you know, you you mentioned him being a, you know, the the worst case scenario here, him being a belligerent drunk, and you know the the excessive force being needed to right. restrain him in that way. Um, you know, at as far as the crime itself beyond any resisting because you know everything else we're talking about after the crime itself is simply a consequence of whatever else is going on um we're talking about forgery uh uh i'm looking here at the wikipedia page because you know uh all hail wikipedia i guess um you know it, we're talking about a non-violent crime um we're, we're talking about we're talking about yes there was uh there was something that happened but i'm gonna go ahead and argue this this didn't deserve this sort of force um you know and, and the area where the force the the literal force is distributed uh is important here um yeah you know like you said a knee on the back uh i i've had conversations with uh with police officers who have described what it's like to try and arrest someone who is uh, high on PCP, um, and it's an yeah, absolute, no, that's a bad time. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare. They act like they have superhuman strength um, for a short period of time, uh, and so there there is there is difficulty uh, in in exactly figuring out how to go about uh, making those arrests, uh, how to go about restraining those individuals, but in the presence of difficulty. Uh, we don't get to say that there is that there's not a wrong choice. There's a wrong choice. Um, and, and this guy, Derek Chauvin, picked the wrong choice. I know that because the guy in question, George Floyd, is dead. It, it's 
you know, there's there's plenty of other choices that would have been less than ideal, um, including him succeeding in resisting arrest and fleeing the scene. But all of those choices, all of them would have been better than guy ends up dead because you held his knee on you held your knee on his neck for upwards of five minutes. Right. And that's that's going to be the thing. And there there are already people who are hopping on this uh, to be contrarians. I've seen um, an anonymous guy saying, like, y'all need to get your facts straight. He died in the hospital. OK, e- easy there, champ. You're going to you're going to hurt yourself really flexing the brain muscles like that. But um, there's always going to be choices that have to be made. And as I noted in in my essay, like police work can get very dangerous very quickly. You will never catch me denying that. Uh, I mentioned the Miami-Dade shootout because that's something, that's an event that I've always found very interesting. But that's not the only time. But I, I made a I made a reference to the rules of engagement that we uh, apply to soldiers when we deploy them. And rules of engagement have been different depending on the situation, depending on who's in charge, uh, depending on what exactly is happening. And I included a reference to the rules of engagement that were issued to soldiers that were in the Middle East recently. I want to say in the last decade. And I have friends that have served in Afghanistan and in other uh, parts of the Middle East that say, yeah, we're given an ROE card that has all that information on it. And it tells us, like, here's what to say to someone that's approaching. Uh, Here's how to say it in all the relevant languages. Um, And a thing that is always noted is if they are not carrying a weapon and attack you, use the minimum force necessary to get them to stop attacking you and then there's a note at the bottom of always act with dignity treat people and their property with respect and always always follow military law and that gets into different things like you can't shoot non-combatants you can't uh you can't like force people to fight on your but like different things like that that are outlined in the hague and geneva conventions My point being, we have rules for the people that we literally train to go and kill people on our behalf. And we have strict penalties for people who break those rules. And there are days where to some people I can understand if they get the impression that we don't hold cops to a very high standard for that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and another aspect of this that complicates the problem is that police officers are a part of our communities. Um, To be clear, members of the military when they're home are, but police officers, whether they're on duty or off duty, uh, they're they're a part of our local communities. Um, These are the same people that you might bump elbows with at, you know, your local restaurant. Um, these are the same people that, you know, you you may, depending on, you know, where you're at in life and where they're at in life, your, your kids may be on the same ball team. Um, and yet, you know, in this case, you've got four who are involved in the murder of a citizen of the community. Um, 
And and I I I know people are going to squabble over the language, but I'm content to go ahead and call it murder based off of the based off of the video. Um, I'm not sure what they'll end up being charged with. Uh, to my knowledge, the officers have not been charged uh, at this point. Um, I I have to imagine that's forthcoming. Um, but with war, with uh, military operations, uh, you're in some sense, there's there's enough distance uh, between you and those events, you and those people to where it doesn't it doesn't hit home. Um, whether excuse me, whether or not it should is a different question. Uh, but that that physical distance allows for a bit of social distance as well. Uh, whereas with something like this, this is going to permanently change uh, that community in Minneapolis. Uh, or Minneapolis. I always mispronounce Minneapolis. Um, but it's going to permanently change that community. It's going to permanently change, uh, especially how the black community views the police department up there. Um, you know, and this this gets back to the, you know, one of the discussions we've had quite frequently over the years, especially the past decade or so, you know, uh, are, you know, you'll you'll hear people say, well, not all cops are like that. Not all car- cops are racist. Uh, and, and you know what? I, I agree with that, but that's not really the point. That's, <laughs> that's not really the point. Um, the point is we've got too many incidents, uh, that are too similar to this. This is almost exactly like the Eric Gar, the Eric Garner incident that took place in New York six years ago. Um, you know, the guy that got basically locked into a chokehold, uh, by a member of the police department up there and died. Uh, I think he was illegally selling cigarettes. I forget exactly what was going on up there. Um, right. But, you know, he, he gets put into a chokehold by a member of the police department and dies. And, and there's been, I, I'm sure there's a list, but, you know, from my perspective, count, countless incidents since then. Um, you know, it, are all police officers racist? No, but that's not really the point. That's not really the question here. Um, and so I, I, you know, with this one, as far as the facts of the case and everything that's happened yet, there's still, there's still some stuff to be decided. Uh, namely, we need to see what these four officers are going to be charged with. Um, I, I highly doubt, uh, that any of them get charged with first degree murder, uh, in large part because, You'd basically have to prove that this was premeditated before any of the video started uh, for for that right. to happen. Um, but beyond that, we'll see. What I'm worried is going to ha- what I'm worried about happening is the officers uh, being able to plead down to some lesser charge that uh, involves a a rather small sentence, if any, uh, prison time uh, by comparison. Um, that that will be problematic. Um, anything, anything where it appears that the officers get off easy, uh, is problematic. The family has already come out and said, I think through their lawyer, you know, this guy took a life. He should get life. Um, I, I'm not sure off the top of my head if, if Minnesota is a capital punishment state or not. Um, shame. Well, well, uh, we, we will we will see what ends up happening, but there's there's a lot yet to be decided. Uh, I can appreciate that an investigation uh, is is going to take place, and I can appreciate that a thorough investigation is going to take time. 
Um, sure. that being, that being said, uh, if, if you're going to take the time to do this, uh, if you're going to use the resources necessary to do this, you better get it right. Uh, and that, and getting it right needs to be reflected in the sentence. We've already mentioned, uh, the Geiger trial down in Texas and how there was a thorough investigation. Everything, you know, once the Texas Rangers took over, uh, and once it got out of the hands of the local police department down there, the investigation went along, uh, expediently. The, the, you know, the trial went along well, and then she got sentenced to 10 years and it kind of just, uh, you know, put a damper on the whole process. And so, go ahead. Go ahead. Nope, you. And really, that's the concern with this case, with the Geiger case, with the Eric Garner incident. Like, the problem that most people feel is that they look at situations like this and they say, I could never get away with this. I could never kill someone and have a whole community just surround me and protect me and insist that I didn't do anything wrong, or if I did, that there was an excuse, and I don't deserve a full punishment. It would be very difficult to imagine that. And it grates against our sense of justice, especially because police officers get put on a pedestal of sorts. We we teach children that they are a trusted in class of people that you're supposed to listen to and obey and respect. Uh, we we have like it's a petty thing, but we have discounts for law enforcement officers. We have back the blue. We have programs for you know hey thank you so much for police officers. And th- again they get put on a pedestal, and when they swan dive off of that pedestal into the concrete, there's a feeling that everyone bends over backwards to make sure there's a pool of water for them to land in so they don't get hurt. And that bothers people, myself included. And so beyond that, there's the concern that they won't get a heavy, they won't get a suitable sentence, but also that eventually they'll just be able to go back to business as usual. The concern is that they'll uh, be able to get hired at a different police department. Because anecdotally, you hear about that. You hear about, oh, this guy this guy wrongly killed someone. Well, he's on administrative leave and he's going to quietly transfer to another department or uh, an instance that kind of flew under the radar. Uh, the deputy that was on campus at Parkland, uh, the, the school shooting that happened a few years ago, uh, that ran and hid while other people who weren't police officers who didn't have a vest, who didn't have a gun, who didn't have training to deal with that situation, ran into the direction of the gunfire and put their bodies on the line to protect kids. That guy got back pay for every month that he was on administrative leave, and now he's back working in the same department at the same school. And people see that, and they think that's ridiculous. That guy shouldn't be a a law enforcement officer anymore. At best, that's the least he should get. Again, you can probably figure out what I think he should get for being a coward that let children die. But what I want isn't always what's going to happen anyway. The point being, people want the feeling, if nothing else, they want the impression 
that the scales are just, that things are being measured equally. And there's, of course, the proverb that unjust scales, weighted scales are an abomination. And not just to God, but to people that pay attention to the scales. Well, and, you know, the, with with that justice, we, you know, it's not simply that we put our police officers on a pedestal. It's that we, we want to, and we want to believe that. Um, in an ideal, uh, in an ideal way, we, we would like to trust that our police officers genuinely have everyone's best interests at heart. Um, you know, we, one of the things we, uh, we try and instill in our kids is that, you know, our, our, and one of the things police officers will tell you is, uh, you know, you don't, don't tell your kids we're out to get them. Don't tell your kids that we're, we're the bad guy. Otherwise they'll be afraid to call us. And as a general, uh, sentiment, I, I would tend to agree with that. The problem is events like this happen, uh, and it starts to at least question that thesis. Um, you know, are, you know, should I call in this scenario? Uh, do they have my best interest at heart? Um, and, you know, if you're a member of the black community, uh, the answer starts to become, at least at times, you know, maybe not. Um, you know, look at what happens when police officers and black individuals, again, black men, uh, younger men, uh, George Floyd was in his mid 40s. It's not terrifically old. You know, black men in particular being the most vulnerable to that. And so we, we want to believe that our law enforcement officers are uh, genuinely working in our best interest or at the very least in the best interest of the community. Um, but then you see incidents like this, which cannot be construed in any way to be working uh, in the best interest of the individual or in the best interest of the community. Um, it just it, it can't. Um, I. I, I'm probably not quite at the position uh, you are as far as what, what should happen. Uh, at the same time, a message absolutely has to be sent at some point. Otherwise, this won't, this won't stop. Um, you know, there's, as far as I can tell, with the vast majority of these cases, there's not been a message sent. The message that's sent is, and this is something you pointed to, um, Officers that do these things uh, are going to get off easier than the general public would. Uh, officers that do these things can get away with being more reckless in how they handle things. Um, and that that message needs to be turned around as fast as possible. And so, like I said, I, I don't know. Uh, something I should probably look up, but I, I don't know if Minnesota's capital, capital punishment state uh, I would be neither shocked nor um, terrifically saddened if all four officers involved, let alone the guy who actually had his knee on the neck of uh, of George Floyd, if all four officers involved end up getting life in prison. Um, because while it might not be exactly what they deserve, um, it would be more than what most in this situation have gotten. Right. And in the absence of capital punishment, um, I, I get that I can't just scream 
execute them, execute them ad infinitum. But uh, I would only disagree in that I would personally prefer that if they can't be executed, that they would have to forfeit their property and the remainder of their able-bodied working years to the family of George Floyd. Just functionally, basically just, okay, you killed him. You three stood by and let him. Congratulations. You're now the property of the Floyd family. And people will object to that. But again, 13th Amendment does allow for slavery to be used as a punishment for crimes. And I'm generally adamantly against slavery. But if you kill a man, I think that being that man's family's slave afterward is the nicest thing you can expect. But again, that gets off into a, a different sort of argument altogether. So I mentioned the Eric Garner case being the closest parallel um, just because of the nature of the death. You know, you had uh, an officer effectively choking uh, a citizen to death over a relatively minor offense. Um, I, I'm guessing you don't know, and I didn't know what happened to the officer. The guy's name is Daniel Pantaleo, I think is his name. Um, do you remember what happened to the officer uh, in that? Incident? I don't, but it will probably make my blood pressure spike. Oh, it's going to do more than that. The guy wasn't even indicted. Uh, now, there was a civil suit uh, that took place after the fact uh, where the Garner family, uh, I think the settlement was for, for $5.9 million, um, You know, out of, uh, they settled, I think they settled out of court. Um, uh, I, I forget exactly. Uh, yeah, $5.9 million out-of-court settlement in 2015, um, which, of course, money doesn't replace people. But uh, there was, you know, it, it, it well, wasn't... it does send a message. It does, uh, except that I don't remember that message being sent. I, I don't remember the settlement. Uh, and that, that's kind of the problem. Well, and, and the problem is the message that's sent is, you know, if it's left up to the state to decide, uh, the state failed miserably, miserably in that regard. Um, they uh, they they filed the suit, by the way, was against the city of New York, the police off the police department and several police officers seeking 75 million in total damages, which, uh, you know, in in civil suits, you're always going to shoot a little bit higher than what you think you, you actually ought to get. But still, again, uh, dollars don't replace people. It doesn't matter what the number is. Uh, it could be, you know, just a paltry amount, basically just to admit that they, uh, just to admit that they were in the wrong, or it could be some Mickey Mouse magical Christmas land number to try and send a message. It doesn't matter. It doesn't replace the fact that this guy died. Um, right. And, and so... But, and yeah, more like, importantly, there's the underlying message of the city of New York settling that and paying for it. It is essentially, this is a bit abstract, but it is essentially the city of New York pulling out a checkbook and saying, what numbers do I need to write on this check to make you leave me alone about this? 
Yeah, I... Well, it so the Gardner case has been going on for a while. In 2017, Think Progress uh, investigated Pantaleo, uh, said he had 17 disciplinary seven, excuse me, disciplinary complaints and 14 individual allegations lodged against him. Four of those allegations were sustained by an independent review board. He was found guilty of one of those 14 and was docked the loss of two vacation days. Um. Trying to see, and then eventually, uh, A.G. William Barr in 2019 uh, would not be charging the officers involved in Gardner's death federally. Um, And so, yeah, hopefully uh, this case, if nothing else, will be evidence that our legal system has made some progress since last year. Uh, We're going to find out. you know, we uh, we're going to find out what happens. Uh, a couple of things sort of tangential to this. First, uh, the first thing is a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Ahmed Arbery. OK, so with Ahmed Arbery, uh, the individual who <clears throat> was behind the camera, we you remember we talked about him last week. Um, <clears throat> uh, we 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 talked about or two weeks ago, rather. And in talking about him, we talked about the individual behind the camera and, you know, not knowing why he was filming. I believe he was just charged with murder. Correct. Um, And so that's I mean, that's an indication that the investigation is at least being taken seriously, whereas you had to feel like with some of these investigations in the past, it was really just making a mockery of the system. Um, Also, have you have you logged on to Twitter today, Sam? Uh, yes, but, uh, my side of Twitter has been more, uh, like more concerned with like the political side of things. So what did I manage to miss on the Twitterverse? Well, there's a few positive things. I could talk about the NHL here and I could talk about, uh, uh, I could talk about, uh, the NASA SpaceX launch, uh, which is a thing that happened today. Um, or I could talk about the fact that uh, at least for a while today on on Twitter, uh, and it's still trending, Make Whites Great Again is trending. Now, the reason is kind of that, silly. That uh, hashtag makes me nervous. I'm not, not going to lie. So the reason is uh, there was a picture, and people thought it was of Derek Chauvin, um, wearing a hat, holding some kind of fruit or something, uh, but wearing a hat. I've seen this picture. Yeah. Mary, wearing the hat, make whites great again. Let, let's be clear. That picture is not of Derek Chauvin. Uh, it's of right. some other individual. Uh, but people have taken it the, and, and run with it. Right. Right. The unfortunate thing is that after a certain point, uh, with the right haircut and facial hair pattern, many generic white men look the same from a side profile after a certain age. But I think the distinguishing feature was that the man in the photo had a tattoo on his arm and uh, Chauvin has no tattoo on his arm, at least not in that spot. 
And I want to say the photo also like featured the man with an iron cross flag. I could be mistaken on that note, though. There is a flag. It might not be the iron cross. I don't care enough about Nazi iconography to get that detail right, if I'm being perfectly honest. And so that's that's something where this guy has done something horrible enough on its own merits. You don't have to you don't have to show that it's even more horrible based off of fake information. Um, you know, it, he murdered a guy like, it, you know, the, the hat. Yeah. You're trying to show that he was, uh, he was racist, but he, he murdered an unarmed black guy. Like what, what more, what more information do you need to prove that, you know, he, he did a terrible thing. Uh, you, you, you don't need more. Um, I wanted to ask you about something sort of tangential to this. It came across my Facebook feed feed today. Do you know who Jack Wilkie is? Yeah. Okay. Did you see Jack? You're friends with him on Facebook. I'm not. We, I follow, I think we follow each other on Twitter though. So, okay. So I asked him if I could share this today and, and right before we got on, he got back with me and said, yeah, uh, you know, we, that we could, uh, he posted a picture on Facebook. Um, uh, and on, I'll, I'll send you the picture so you've got it in front of you here. Uh, but on the picture, on the left, it says, uh, or on the left, it's a picture of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. Um, and on the right, it's a picture of uh, former officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Uh, and it says down in bottom, uh, what kneeling offends you more? And Jack basically right. asked the question today, what kneeling offends you more? It, it, don't overthink it. Don't assume it's asking you to become a Kaepernick fan. Uh, the question isn't here, you know, uh, which one is right, which one is wrong. The question is, which is more offensive? Uh, and to be clear, I believe that there is an objectively correct answer to this question. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree. So, um, but three guesses, which one it is. Yeah. Well, you know, you give people three and even though there are only two choices, some people are going to pick the wrong one three straight times. And that's, that's what has happened is you've had, I'm not going to read off names publicly because I don't have their permission and I don't think that would be, uh, that would be particularly helpful to, become all of a sudden inflammatory and and you know flame certain individuals but when it comes to this choice there is an objectively correct answer and yet some people double down on how wrong the Kaepernick thing is in light of what's happened um I I I cannot imagine I cannot imagine trying to um debate the Colin Kaepernick kneeling situation at all in light of what just happened. Um, Because as awful as all of these uh, incidents of uh, police, uh, police violence have been this, this particular incident based off of the evidence we have based off of the litany of, of uh, spectators of, uh, of witnesses to use a legal term 
uh, based off of the clear evidence that we have about the situation, this is arguably the clearest incident with regard to what we're going to call police brutality. Um, and the clearest incident to why Kaepernick was, was kneeling. Um, you know, to be clear, uh, I, I don't think much of Kaepernick as, as a person, uh, you know, he, he, he's made some pretty, pretty, we'll say interesting decisions, especially since the fallout of all this. Um, but at the same time, with regard to which is more offensive, it's the picture with the murder in it. Um, I will tell you that there was but, one. Uh, but but my flag, though, Chris, there was one uh, there's one lady on the post who mentioned that she had talked to her. I think it's eight year old daughter about it, um, you know, and asked her basically the same thing. And and the eight year old said, well. I think the Bible says something about murder. I, I don't remember it saying anything about a flag. Yeah. And, gen and generally, I'm against... I'm generally skeptical of any time that children are alleged to have said something profound on Facebook or anywhere else for that matter. But... I'll I'll reach out in good faith here and say yeah the kids on to something yeah you know it well and it's something where <clears throat> with this situation um you know it if your kids are old enough to sort of comprehend uh the significance of of murder um this is a conversation you ought to you ought to start having uh. You know, with my boys, I, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. We're not there yet. Uh, they they don't they don't comprehend death as even being a thing beyond the fact that you know they've got a family member or two. You know, when we ask them about where their great granddad is, uh, Granddad Joe, where's Granddad Joe? He's uh, he's with Jesus. Okay, well that that's about as far as we've gotten with death. Um, and so you know we us having that discussion with them would have been uh, would have been difficult, but you know, once you start to hit middle to late elementary school, this needs to be a regular conversation, um, where parents are teaching their kids about justice because otherwise their perspective on justice is going to be skewed heavily, uh, in a way that maybe isn't appropriate. Um, you know, I'm staring at this picture right now and it's like, you know, this, uh, as much as, like I said, as much as I, I, I really find uh, Kaepernick to be obnoxious in a lot of other areas. I get why he was doing what he was doing when he was in the NFL, why he was kneeling. Um, I don't know, to, to be perfectly frank, uh, I don't know if three years ago I would have said the same thing, but but I get it now. Um, with everything that's happened and with how much clearer it is uh, based on the evidence we have now, you know, the, it, it's not even a question. There's an objectively right answer here, um, and yet people s still seem to get it wrong. Um, you know, well, they're both wrong. That's not the question. Even if you believe that the Kaepernick thing is wrong, that that's not the question. There is an answer to which one is more wrong. <laughs> I I get I get very sick and tired of people 
equivocating protest with murder. They're not the same thing. Right. And that's going to be the that's going to be the question that people have to wrestle with, because there are already reports of riots in Minneapolis or Minneapolis. Excuse me. I'm taking on your inability to pronounce that city's name. But um, uh, and I haven't seen anything definite on that. But I mean, there are already people protesting. There are already people like out in the streets kind of putting their foot down saying, no, this is wrong. And that's a good and right thing to do. And, uh, of course, um, I have more controversial opinions about uh, what sort of things are allowed or disallowed at protests. But at a baseline level, it's a good and right thing for people to recognize the injustice, see it for what it is, and go out of their way to say, no, sorry, that's not something we're willing to tolerate. You know, I the other thing here is that there likely wouldn't be protests if this is something that Justice Departments had gotten right beforehand. Um, you know, it, it's one thing it it's one thing if you've got a if you've got an officer who's done something terrible like uh, what Chauvin did. Um, the problem isn't strictly with that although that is a major problem the problem is that in cases previous to this that are similar justice it's not just that justice hasn't been executed it's that it's barely been attempted um you know you've got a few examples of uh of officers and others in this situation getting what they deserve and you've got uh cataloged example after example of officers getting off relatively easy if with anything at all. Um, and, and that's the problem. That's why there are protests. Like you get, you get an officer murder someone. And the, the understanding is that officer is going to face at minimum life in prison. Uh, there, there are no protests. There are also far fewer incidents of this. Um, but if, you know, if previous history uh, is any indication, then there's a, there's a strong distrust of the Justice Department at this point in time because uh, the Justice Department, at least in other areas, has not done its job. Now, I can't speak to the history of, uh, of pro- police brutality and uh, race-related incidents in uh, Minnesota. I'm not an expert in that area. But nationwide, uh, this is somewhat endemic. Um, and it's... You know, the, the reason for the riots is not simply uh, that an unarmed black man was killed by a police officer. The reason is if we don't get out here and do something, there's a good chance y'all aren't going to do anything. Right. And this, com- this comes into the suspicion of a culture of with the Ahmed Arbery case, we referenced a good old boys club, but um with police officers, especially, there's a, there's a perception of the sort of brotherhood of people that will defend each other, uh, even when someone is doing something wrong. And that's in part been amplified by stories about corrupt officers, uh, especially in media. It's a very common uh, story thread for 
police officers to be in on various crimes, usually vices, and have police officers around them protect them. And a new and upcoming cop tries to do something about it and finds out that he's having to deal not just with the crime itself, but also with corrupt police officers. But even more getting into reality, there just this there's a reason that that becomes a reality, not just because it's an interesting story, but because people see it happen or people read about it happening or they watch it happen in their own lives. And the result is the strange dichotomy of, I don't trust you officer, but you uh, in your position, expect me to trust you with my life. And there's always going to be that tension, mainly because generally you shouldn't trust people with your life that you don't know. But even going beyond the practical, it's very difficult for me to trust my life to someone who has a codified list of reasons that they're allowed, of situations in which they're allowed to kill me or to brutalize me, or to otherwise injure me. It's very difficult for me to trust someone that is allowed to lie to me, and I can't do anything about it if they do, that is in other ways able to exert power and influence over me that I have no real recourse against. And beyond that even, of even when that power is used improperly, as we've kept kept hitting on, nothing happens. And a result that's hot on a lot of people's minds because of uh, Netflix, I believe, Waco. Janet Reno accepted full responsibility for what happened at Waco. And nothing happened to her. And it kind of brings the question of, okay, what does accepting full responsibility even mean? Chris... If you headed up an operation wherein you launched tear gas into a building full of women and children and then ordered a tank to be driven through that same building and start a whole chain reaction of events that left the charred corpses of children on the ground in front of you, one, you wouldn't pose in front of those charred corpses and take pictures like the ATF did. Two, people would wonder why on earth you have a tank. And three... You couldn't do a press conference and say, look, I accept full responsibility for what happened and have everyone say, oh, well, okay, they accepted he accepted responsibility. But that's a very high profile instance where people will say, well, no one one would ever do that. Yes, they would. They did exactly that. Or you can talk about. Uh, I'll, I'll conclude very quickly. Or you can talk about Ruby Ridge. The police officers wouldn't try to trick someone into breaking the law. Yes, they would. They had to pay the Weaver family, or what was left of the Weaver family, a substantial sum of money for doing just that. Or they wouldn't do this or that when it turns around. Like, yes, absolutely, they would. There's documented instances of them doing so. And if you do those things, they will hunt you down. And they will take you in and lock you in a cage by any means necessary, even if it means they have to kill you first. You know, with, with that um, that phrase, accepting responsibility, it, it's meaningless if it doesn't also mean accepting consequences. That, that's ultimately where the line is there. Um, 
you know, and, and to be clear, in Janet Reno's case and in uh, in this officer's case, even if he comes out tomorrow uh, and he says he accepts responsibility for what's happened there, um, it doesn't make it any more right. Uh, but at that point, he's, you know, what is he supposed to do? Right. It, it uh, you know, we have left the administration of discipline, the administration of punishment uh up to the state, up to be it on a state level, which uh, the Minnesota uh, uh, Criminal Bureau of Apprehension, I think is what it's called. That's the state level investigation or the FBI uh, and their investigation. Uh, ultimately, they and the courts where their cases are tried uh, are going to determine what those consequences are. And so even if this officer, even if the four officers involved come out tomorrow and say they accept responsibility for what has happened, it doesn't mean anything if there are no consequences. You know, and and by and large, those consequences are the things they can do specifically to make reparations themselves. Sure. But they're the expectation is uh, the state at whatever level is going to administer those consequences, administer that punishment. And so that that's ultimately where the rub is here. Um, I, I want to switch gears very quickly as we're sort of uh, as we're sort of closing uh, or winding down, I've, I've been on Facebook a little bit uh, since we started talking, uh, and I was already thinking of a question I was going to ask you, and then I came across a Stan Mitchell post from October of uh, 2018 uh, that's being shared, uh, where Stan posted, if racial differences do not matter in heaven, they should not matter on earth, uh, which, you know, very much sounds like something Stan would say uh, if he were still with us. Um, my question is this, uh, and, and maybe I'm already sort of answering the question by looking at that status of stands. Um, what difference should this make in our churches come this, come this upcoming Sunday? Well, for, for a few things, I would just note one, there are going to be people who are tempted to discount, uh, Stan's words there. Uh, one, I'll fight you. Uh, to uh, not you specifically, I obviously, but um, the person trying to step to the late great Stan Mitchell. But uh, two, as a more serious response, don't be so quick to discount Stan, uh, because um, to put it bluntly, he grew up in a country that was deeply scarred by racial tensions. And you might say, what do you mean? And by that, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but Stan may have lived in Zimbabwe for a while when it was still called Rhodesia. He did. So um, the transition from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe is horrific, to say the least. So um, whatever Stan might remember of that transition will say um he's not a person or he wasn't rather a person that took issues like that lightly and he loved people deeply of all stripes of all places in life and of all backgrounds so that's me more stepping up to the plate to defend someone who i admire greatly and i look forward to seeing again as to the changes that i hope uh, as to what I hope to see churches respond to, uh, 
Um, it depends. Um, if it's going to be just very generic, kind of wishy-washy, sort of, well, you know, not all cops are like this and this or that. Uh, I'd prefer that they not say anything at all. But uh, if there's going to be grieving over wrongful death and injustice and then prayers for genuine rich biblical justice to take place even if we disagree on what exactly that justice looks like because again you can figure out what i think the biblical answer to this problem is but um to get back on track um christians every day should be a people who desire justice and i understand that there are very serious discussions over what justice looks like especially because of the social justice movement, and I have deep-seated problems with the intellectual underpinnings of most social justice uh, movement personas and positions, but I am willing to hold out an olive branch and say I, I, I am also tired of seeing Black people killed by police officers. I'm tired of people in general being killed by police officers wrongly. Uh, I keep a few select names just burned into my memory at all time because I am sick and tired of it. And I would love to see a time where it doesn't happen anymore. And I would, I would hope that Christians can pray for that. I, uh, I'm speaking, I'm guest speaking at a congregation in a little under a month on a Wednesday night. Uh, and I already know the topic. I'm, I'm speaking on growing in love. Uh, it's from First Peter chapter two, um, and I think this discussion is a part of that. Um, the idea, you know, I, I preach for a congregation of mostly uh, white members. Um, we have a few Native American members. We've got one or two Hispanic members. Uh, and uh, we have uh, a couple of black members of the church who are frequent visitors uh, that are members here, but probably 90 percent white, uh, fairly rural area. Uh, and that describes most of my preaching experience uh, has been in that that situation. Uh, Fanger, Hera and now Bridge Creek. Um, you know, and, and that's really that's a product of the community. That's not necessarily any sort of. Uh, inherent racism that causes us to be separated from uh, the diversity in the local community. It's just there's not that much diversity in the local community. And so we're probably the average cross-section of the community here at Bridge Creek. All that being said, you know, when when we see problems like this, our community uh, is less likely to empathize only because we don't go through the same sorts of things that uh, that our black friends do. Um, we don't we don't have these same instances uh, in our community that people in uh, that people in black communities, people in more urban communities like Minis or like Minneapolis um, go through. We haven't had these shell shock moments. Uh, at least to this degree. And I think growing in empathy uh, is, is a part of growing in love, is, is understanding 
instead of just reacting in a very visceral way that says, you know, well, you know, I don't understand your problems. And so they can't be real or they're not as bad as what you say they are making an effort to understand problems that you yourself aren't going through, uh, making an effort to understand fear that you yourself or maybe your congregation doesn't experience. Um, you know, I, I've been preaching a lot on on family recently. Every year at Bridge Creek, I try and preach uh, on family from Mother's Day through Father's Day. And it's not always the easiest thing because, you know, my family situation hasn't always been perfect. It's not perfect right now. Um, and, you know, it's, that's true of the members in the congregation. But there are members who haven't experienced most of what I talk about up there. Uh, and, and in a very similar way, we've got members who haven't experienced or don't know people who have directly experienced or don't have any real direct connection outside of their own base humanity uh, to the things that we've talked about this week and with the Aubrey shooting uh, two or three weeks ago. I, I think making them understand or helping them understand uh, some base level of compassion for people who are going through this compassion for people who feel scared, who are scared um, for various different reasons. Um, you know, people who are scared that they're going to be treated differently based on their skin color, not simply hand waving that away, uh, but making a sincere, genuine effort uh, to show compassion, to empathize and to work together on those things. Um, you know, we, we see some of that, I think in, in the book of Romans too, uh, Paul is addressing, there's a few splits you can identify in the book of Romans, but arguably the primary one is, is racial in nature. You know, you've got a group of Roman Christians and you've got a group of Jewish Christians probably returning to Rome in Romans. And there's, there's a divide there, uh, and Paul points back to each of their previous experiences. He, read, he he understands the Jewish experience a little bit more just because he's been through it. But he points back to their previous experiences uh, and basically shows what matters now is that they're united in Christ. Um, and, and I think sometimes uh, as far as how we treat people, I'm not saying in understanding others' experiences, but as far as how we treat people, we will say something to the effect or we will, if not say it, believe something to the effect of, well, my Christian experience matters more than my white experience, if you will. When in reality, my Christian experience should make my white perspective irrelevant. Um, Paul makes the argument in Second Corinthians chapter five that being in Christ completely changes how he views people. And so. Learning to foster that compassion for people, uh, for people who are going through things and are living through things that you yourself don't directly understand. Instead of simply hand waving problems away, but treating the problems as genuine, as sincere, and as something that needs to be dealt with, or things that need to be dealt with, um, and actually moving toward that. Uh, I. You know, that, that I think that's where it has to start. That doesn't that doesn't get rid of the problem entirely. And even even fixing any sort of racial issues within the local congregation isn't going to get rid, rid of the problem entirely. And 
in part because, you know, sin's going to exist outside the church uh, and we're going to struggle with sin inside the church. Um, but having those honest, sincere discussions um, in, in a very in a very applicable, in a very personal way, it's not just simply that they up in Minneapolis or they down in Georgia or they in insert uh, well dallas or they in any other area um struggle with this it's that if we're not careful uh, we can not that we will not that it's a guarantee but we can make the same decisions if we're not careful and we're not helping the problem get better if we're not taking the problem seriously right and just very quickly on the question of experience I understand and even sympathize with people who are frustrated when people say, well, listen to my experience, listen to my, uh, like validate my experience or well, like you can't understand my experience. And I understand uh, concerns about standpoint epistemology and I'm adamantly against it. But there is a difference between what I am saying is infallibly true or extrapolations that I make from on different arguments are true because of my lived experience and saying this happened to me. Can we at least acknowledge that I experienced this? And even beyond that, the time to have a lecture on epistemology, I, I, I love laying down logical and philosophical foundations. That's a good, great thing to do, but the time to do that is not when a person is grieving and trying to process their own experience. Uh, just as the time to lecture someone on the defects of their theology isn't when they're mourning or during a funeral, uh, to put it more pointedly, uh, there's a time and place for discussions on Ex how experience validates or is related to truth. And I think sometimes in our desire to push back against standpoint epistemology, we go past pushing back against standpoint epistemology and on towards the mistake of saying, don't ever bring up your experience. Uh, your experience is meaningless. So we, we need to be very careful about that. Well, we, we need to, with that experience, I think it helps our churches to connect it to uh, to similar, if not exactly the same, but similar biblical situations. Um, you know, the 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 Romans example I bring up because I, I think it, it's the most the most helpful example in this regard. There are very clear differences there. And Paul doesn't simply say, OK, just leave it be. Paul says there, and really throughout the book of Ephesians, it's probably where it's most uh, central, um, basically says th this needs to get better. You know, th this is not something that's okay. Uh, and, and if you think that this is something that doesn't affect churches, you're not looking around. Um, you know, we've got dedicated black churches uh, in the same community as large white churches. Granted, you know, here in Bridge Creek specifically, we only have one congregation because the population doesn't really merit having a second one. 
Um, but with with this question, uh, you've got you know you've got black churches in the same congregation as white churches. Um, they're not there. They don't exist as two separate congregations because one likes to sing one way and the other likes to sing another way. Right. There's some deep seated issues, issues that members uh, that many members at both congregations might not be fully aware of uh, that that caused that split. Um, and so, you know, we, we will talk about racism and we'll talk about it in a way as if, you know, it just affects those, you know, those other people. It doesn't really affect us. It, it affects all of us. Um, and, and I get frustrated when. Like you said, I get frustrated when preachers get wishy-washy about it. I get frustrated. I probably get most frustrated when preachers talk about it without making any direct application, um, as if it's just some problem that, yes, Scripture addresses and, yes, is present in our society, but isn't, you know, no one here suffers from it. Really? You kidding me? Nobody? Um, You know, I, I mean, you don't have to go around wearing a make whites great again hat to be racist. Um. And so it, it's something that we need to we need to be we need to have an open, honest, frank discussion about it um, without just hand waving away any particular part of the discussion either. That's that's you know, and, and that's what happened a few years ago, I think, with the Colin Kaepernick kneeling thing. Like I said, I, I didn't really care for it then. Um you know, granted, I, I didn't boycott the NFL over it. Uh, you had some people legitimately do that, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really care for it back then. But, you know, at, at even at that point in time, you had people just hand waving away the issue of as if, it, you know, he's disrespecting the flag and it's a non-issue and, you know, basically making it an issue or misunderstanding the issue, whether willfully or ignorantly, um, misunderstanding the issue entirely. Uh, there... I'll tell you one thing, Sam, after all this has happened, there's no more excuse for ignorance on the issue. Um, you you are either seeking out information that is readily available and trying to uh, trying to help make things better or you don't care. I mean, yeah, pretty much. And. And that's really the problem. Most people don't care. And that's not to say that they're malicious. Uh, like You can find the people that are. You don't really have to look very hard. But until it becomes someone that they care about or until it's until it's someone in their community or someone that they know, it's not really an issue. Um, I've, I've talked about this before, maybe not here on the podcast, but, I'm, but I really started caring once I heard about Philando Castile. I had seen others and thought, you know, that's wrong. I hope that justice is carried out. But with Castile, it really bothered me because there were points of commonality. Uh, both of us are licensed to, to carry a, a firearm both of us care care about those things uh, he cared in the past tense of course and i look at that and he's an african-american man and he did everything he was supposed to do 
when he was pulled over, he he was ready to hand over his license and his permit and tell the officer, you know, I have to let you know I am carrying a pistol on my person and always made it a point to keep all his ducks in a row with that. And the officer still just started screaming at him, telling him, don't reach for your gun, don't reach for your gun. Lando saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And he got shot seven times for it. And I looked at that and I thought he did everything he was supposed to do and he still got shot. Why? And thinking about it and saying, okay, God forbid it, but if I'm ever in the same situation, would that happen to me? And there's a variety of different major factors at play, but the major one is obviously the difference in my skin tone. Um, people don't look at my skin tone and think whatever percent of the population is responsible for whatever percent of violent crime. My officers don't look at me and get suspicious. Uh, if someone notices that I'm carrying a pistol, they say, hey, man, that's pretty cool. What do you carry? The same isn't necessarily true with men like Philando. And, and that really just kind of burrowed itself into my head and hasn't left since. And that's that's sort of where that that thought it, it would help for more people to consider that, um, you know. And, and you might say to yourself. There might be people thinking, you know, well, that doesn't necessarily change what that one officer is going to do. And that doesn't change the fact that there are going to be racist police officers. And, and that's true. Um, no matter what safeguards you take, there's going to be, you know, sin is still sin, right? You'll hear that take place. It's a sin problem. Well, well yeah, but what's the sin? Well, it's racism. Okay. Um, sin is still sin. It's still going to happen. Uh, and you're still going to have police officers, even after you do all this, there's still going to be, yes, a minority, but some number of police officers who uh, who allow uh, prejudice, discrimination, racism to uh, to affect uh, their operation, to affect what they do and how they do it. The difference that it makes, however, is, number one, how those uh, how these incidents are viewed. Um, because the pushback uh, against the outcry because of injustice is just mind-blowing to me, but it's becoming less and less prominent. There's less pushback to this incident now than there uh, than there was to Eric Garner six years ago. And number two, that officer is not the only person involved in executing justice. Um, you know, there's going to be, Lord willing, there's going to be a judge there's going to be a grand jury and then later on a jury of his peers to determine uh, whether or not he was guilty of murder. Um, and whereas most Christians aren't going to end up uh, as police officers, most Christians aren't going to end up as judges. Uh, Christians are going to be in a position where they can influence either directly or indirectly the pursuit of justice on the part of uh, you know, society as a whole. Um, you know, it might not be complete and comprehensive. We might not be able to push for justice in a way that guarantees uh, it is accomplished. But our job, uh, and you mentioned this uh, in your essay, our job per Micah 6.8 and other passages is to uh, is to do justice, to seek out justice. 
Um, and I'm, I'm a firm believer just to leave you, uh, with a bit of a mantra, I guess, but I'm a firm believer, uh, that when the Lord commands us to do something, we ought to do it to the best of our ability. Uh, and I think with regard to justice, especially with regard to, uh, justice, uh, for individuals, uh, who have been the victim of, of, uh, of, well, we'll call it a hate crime. We'll call it brutality. However, specifically you want to characterize it. Uh, there's more work to be done. Uh, and if there's more work to be done, then there's more work for me as a Christian who is called to seek out justice. There's more work for me to do. So you, uh, well, is there anything else you wanted to bring up with regard to this? I just have one last thing. Uh, Go ahead. Given that we are both ostensibly, I kid, of course, uh, Christians, uh, a psalm came to mind. Uh, it's fairly controversial for very unrelated reasons, but Psalm 82 comes to mind. And I'll just read it very quickly. It's eight verses, and that, that'll just kind of be my piece. Psalm 82, uh, and I read from the Christian Standard Bible. I, I like the CSB. Fight me, I guess, if you really feel inclined. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth. For all the nations belong to you. Very briefly, put aside the debates about the divine assembly and what exactly that entails. Whether the psalmist here is referring to an actual divine assembly or he's referring to the rulers of the earth and judges of the earth generally, either way, God demands that those that he appoints, and he appoints all rulers and leaders directly or indirectly, he demands that they carry out justice and he promises that their punishment will be severe if they don't. Thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time.